This is Unfiltered, episode 293 for March 22nd, 2020. While Americans are looking to Congress for help during this tough economic time, several senators are reportedly having helped themselves. On January 24th, senators were given a closed-door briefing on the coronavirus by top health officials. Over the next few weeks, several senators reportedly sold hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, of stocks. Senate Intel Chairman Richard Burr sold up to $1.7 million worth. Welcome to Unfilter, your damn near daily show that's looking at all of the news and headlines and watching all of the clips so you don't have to. From the front lines of the coronavirus, my name is Chris, and today I thought I'd do a recap of everything that's happened over the weekend. As I record this, it's Sunday afternoon. Monday, there's a lot of new news expected to drop. An update on oil prices, an update on corona numbers, new stay-at-home orders, Monday, Tuesday of this coming week are supposed to be some of the busiest we've seen yet in terms of news volume. So my thinking was we do a slightly shorter version of the show right now to just get us caught up on the weekend's headlines to clear out to make room for the new for the news. Um, well, next week, we're working behind the scenes to get the show back up and running. Once we've caught up, I expect we'll transition to a weekly cadence. Mr. Chase Nunes has said that he is on board with joining us once we reach that weekly cadence. Because remember, man, it's still at work. He's not sheltering at home, actually. I think uh, the news media and some of their staff is considered essential workers. So Chase is still driving down into downtown Seattle every day right now during all of this. So daily is just out of the question for him practically out of the question for me. But weekly, that's something we're getting ready to commit to. We'll be standing the Patreon back up. Chase will be joining me. We'll be getting the show going full steam ahead very soon. with the latest update on the coronavirus. The numbers, of course, as you expected, are trending upwards. Fast-breaking developments in the coronavirus emergency in the U.S. and around the world. The number of cases soaring just today, more than 24,000 now nationwide. New Jersey today becoming the sixth state to close all non-essential businesses, joining California, New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Nevada. More than 80 million Americans now told to stay at home. New York State with more than 11,000 cases, and now New York City with new rules on who will be tested. Plus, Governor Andrew Cuomo's alarming prediction, he says 40 to 80 percent of people will ultimately become infected. 40 to 80? That's quite the range. And that 80 number is awfully scary. That's why information matters a lot right now, because we don't know where this thing is going. As things develop? I start to think maybe it's going to be closer to that 40%, but we'll see. We'll see. Rachel Meadow, though, is making the case 
that information is so important, we need to shut down the Trump daily press briefings. She's pretty fired up about it. And, guys, she's a little, well, disappointed doesn't even say it enough. She, at this point, can't even. I just can't. I know we ought to be getting used to this kind of thing by now, but I'm not. I love this sigh. <laughs> like, she left that in there. Uh, they could have cut it, of course. Now, I've been watching every single one of these daily press briefings. Uh, <laughs> Angela and I, actually, she's been watching them, too, and I've been watching them. Because, you know, we're here in Seattle. Like, we want to know what's going on. And so we're chatting during these press briefings, talking about what they're talking about or what the stat is and all that stuff. And so we've been following them very closely. And uh, Rachel apparently has been watching a different stream than I have. This has been prescribed for many years for people to combat malaria, which was a big problem, and it's very effective. It's a strong, it's a strong drug. So it was we'll see. Fairly effective against SARS. It was a very. It was, as I understand that. I, I is that a correct statement? It was. So the reporter leads the president with the question. He sort of nods, yeah, I think, but then he turns to the doctor. To verify it, he doesn't lead with it. He's like, "Well, maybe we should double check that." It's, it's a, listen. It was a very. It was, as I understand that. I, I is that a correct statement? Was, he turns to the doctor. It was fairly effective on SARS. John, you've got to be careful when you say fairly effective. It was never done in a clinical trial. They compared it to anything. Okay. Now, later in previous, or I should say, former interviews, doctor, the doctor there said, "Well, there is actually some." Some trials we're about to do right now. We're actually about to do some of these trials. It was never done in a clinical trial. They compared it to anything. You've got to be very careful when you say fairly effective. Um, President Trump today, again, just flat out wrong in public um, about this malaria drug that has gotten stuck in his mind quite some distance from the facts. Of course, when Rachel Meadows was getting facts wrong about Russiagate and Trump's taxes— quite out in the public. That's no big deal. Now, I'm not going to say Trump's done a great job because he's Trump. You know, he says dumb stuff. He he talks about maybe this whole thing will go away and then the media runs with it. But it gave us an opportunity to actually witness the president in a moment of genuine crisis. And I think that's everyone's big fear about Trump, right? What if he became president and something horrible happened? Well, this seems so far like once he turned, once his attitude went from, oh, it's no big deal to last week, basically at the beginning of last week when all of a sudden it became a big deal and he had a towel task force together. He really seems like he's had his shit together. And I've watched every single one of these and he's current and up to date on even small like supply chain details. President, how, how do you help out states and localities that are trying to bid on things like ventilators and other items that are being outbid by the... the well, when they call us, they let us know. If there's a conflict, they will call us and we will drop our bid because we want them to go first. Because he immediately knows the answer. He doesn't have to hem and haw about it. He immediately knows what the current situation is with these ventilators. Because their point, their point of sale. So we've had four or five instances where literally that was happening because, you know, we're both trying to get stuck. And if we're going against, they will call us, the smart ones, frankly, will call us, and we will immediately, we want them to buy it because it gets to them quicker if they buy it. Okay. Do they know that they're... We're really there. They know that. And it's happening more and more where they're calling and they're saying we're bidding against each other. They want to get it. They'll get it much quicker that way. <laughs> 
that's one example right there. That's one example. Uh, there's several. There was, you know, many hours now of these questions, and that's generally his ability to answer them. It's better than I would expect. Now, I know sometimes when I say something even close to halfway good about Trump, people freak out. Don't worry. There will also be times I criticize him. But I, I think this narrative that uh, Trump is putting out misinformation, um, I, I just don't buy it. When I watch these press conferences, I, this is a level of transparency I would have loved to have seen from the administration on all kinds of things. It seems like genuine experts are answering the questions. And Trump is frequently deferring to them, which is also sort of what I thought would have been out of character for him. But it is what I would want from a leader that's trying to manage a very serious situation. But like I said, there, there are moments that are very Trump. Okay, so uh, Secretary of State will be leaving. Any other question? For Go ahead in the back, please. In the back for Mike. Excuse me, I didn't call on you. Thank you, Mr. President. Excuse me, I didn't call on you. And then, of course, he has to get his shots in. Members of Congress uh, are now being uh, tested positive for... Members of Congress are now being tested positive for coronavirus. Trump told him, hey, turn up the volume. He, he, he motions to him, turn it up, boy, I can't hear you. And we, you have almost two dozen who are self-quarantining. Do you um, have any guidance for Congress? Should they? I know all of them, and uh, I don't know if they're sitting like you people are sitting. You're actually sitting too close. You should really, we should probably get rid of about another 75, 80 percent of you. I'll have just two or three that I like in this room. I think that's a great way of doing it. We just figured a new way of doing it. Uh, but you're actually much too close. You know, you two, you should leave immediately. But I do whine because I want to win. That's what he's doing in these press conferences. So he has his moments. I'm not saying they're all gold. I mean, they're funny. Um, perhaps my absolute favorite moment was when he went after uh, an NBC reporter, Peter Alexander, who really is just a, a human trash bag. What do you say the Americans were scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witness, who are scared right now. Such a, such a typical media fear-mongering question. It's a bad question. 200 dead in a country of over 300 million. 20,000 died from the flu in one state this past winter. But the media doesn't, they don't give you any kind of context. So it's a, it's a question that in, in the vacuum of context seems not only important, but seems sort of dramatic and scary. 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witness, who are scared right now. Millions are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? This guy, like what, what a vapid crap question. I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. <laughs> he is. That's not news journalism. It's fear mongering. And the guy just has this shit eating look on his face right now when Trump says that. Watching you right now, who are scared. I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question. And I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism and uh, the same with NBC and Concast. So I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast. Hope. I call it Concast. Oh, he's got a new name, Concast. Let me just ask for whom you work. Let me just ask for whom you work. <laughs> something that's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Let's see if it works. It might and it might not. I happen to feel good about it. 
But who knows? I've been right a lot. Let's see what happens, John. Is that appropriate? I don't know. That guy, that guy, though, is scaring the population. And a undereducated, fearful population is extremely dangerous. And it's hard to really know where this is all going to fall because we expect new numbers on Monday. But as of this week, the actual positive rate is is quite low when people are tested. So Trump asked Pence, come up here and talk about the testing. You can hear him. Over, uh, you can, it's a little hot mic. Tell him how well that's working. Obviously, this is all kind of being framed in a positive light, just like China does. We sit here and we criticize China for only focusing on the positive, for having state-controlled media. And here we are, and we just don't even bat an eye when the president says, just tell him the good stuff. That's, an, that's essentially a signal for saying, don't talk about all the shit that's going wrong with testing. Just tell him the good stuff. That's the stuff we should be calling Trump out on. Not if he calls it the China virus. That stuff. Right there. The racism stuff, I know it upsets some of you. It's a red herring. They're pulling the same stunt in Italy right now. You can go look it up. They're using the same same playbook in Italy to justify some delays because of racism. You can go look it up. We focus on the wrong thing. With Trump, you've got to be precise with your criticism. And we focus on the wrong thing, and it drives me so crazy. This crap right here, just tell him the good stuff. We need to know all of it. Well, uh, as I said, uh, more and more tests are being performed every day. And as we learn about the results that are being reported around the country of coronavirus tests, our experts continue to look at the numbers and see that uh, some 90 percent of Americans that are tested uh, do not test positive for the coronavirus. Another way of putting that is only 10 percent are testing positive. Hmm. That is... That's a pretty that's a pretty low number actually. That does that doesn't seem so scary, does it? Of course we might see that change, but so far that doesn't seem so scary. Trump had a line in this press conference that I actually thought was is worth playing for you guys because in a moment, not not quite yet, but in a moment I'm going to start talking about the economy and how this really sucks. But um Maybe I'll play this clip now, just so when we get to that segment, we keep this in the back of our mind. Um, Senator Johnson has suggested... Well, I'd rather have, if you could finish up with the Secretary of State. I think I've worn him out, Mr. President. Well, um, <laughs> let me Is everybody finished, Secretary of State? Let me ask you both if that's all right. Mr. Secretary, Senator Johnson has suggested that you and the administration may be overreacting. He said, we don't shut down our economy because tens of thousands of people die on the highways. We don't shut down our economies because tens of thousands of people die from the common flu. Uh, at worst, 3.4% of Americans will die from this uh, virus, he said. Uh, what do you say to people that have that view? That's 11 million people he's talking about. Well, I can just say the entire world is agreeing with us because they're all, they all have their choice and uh, everybody's doing the exact same thing. We want to shut it out. And uh, we can do that, and we'll see what happens in two weeks and three weeks. But uh, 
If we can save thousands of lives and even millions of lives, potentially, you don't know where it goes, but you could be talking about millions of lives. So uh, if you look at the, the world, I mean, you have some very smart people in the world. You have some smart leaders in the world and everybody's doing it the way we're doing it. I think we're doing a better job than uh, hopefully most, if not all. We're doing a very effective job, but we'll we'll know better in 14 or 15 days. But, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands and maybe more than that numbers of people. And, uh, you know, we can bring our finances back very quickly. We can't bring the people back. Mr. President. Uh, that argument is actually kind of hard to argue with. So we'll give some space between that and the economy. <laughs> so that way I don't feel like such a jerk. I, I would like to talk about a couple aspects of this pandemic that have been on my mind. And mostly it's in our reaction to it. I am kind of getting a high dose version of this in Washington. Um, but recently I've had to get my RV fixed and my preferred shop that I have spent a lot of money at getting a solar system installed refused to fix my power problem, which at the time I don't know. I like did not know. Is it because of their work? Because their work was only done a month ago. They refused to see us because we were in a high-risk area. They set up the appointment. They realized what our location was, got in contact with us and said, you can't come down. And my house was stranded. That really had me shift my perspective. I mean, also interacting with neighbors and whatnot also really opened my eyes. I want to talk about the shelter-in-place meme. New details are just coming in on the new stay-at-home order in Oregon tonight. Megan Allison from our sister station reports there's some uncertainty about how that order will be carried out. Let's stop here. So um, this has been my primary concern is that they will issue a shutdown here in Washington state. The shops will close and I won't be able to get the RV repaired. I won't even be able to drive there. But it's unclear on how they plan to enforce any of this practically. Governor says stay home, stay healthy is both an order as well as a public awareness campaign. I, I, I can't believe they can even order us to do this. A local city here, Everett, the mayor issued a decree to stay home. Now, they can't actually enforce it. But since since when can mayors tell me to stay in my house? Like what country is this? The f- the free and the brave. We asked if that means a shelter-in-place order or similar directive will be coming in the days ahead. And the governor tells us there will be no additional orders or directives given right now. We asked the mayor of Portland, and he says an order will be coming and that the next few days will be spent clarifying those details. When we asked if Portland may be acting alone in this, he says they are prepared to act independently. However, the mayor here is hoping for unity within the state. And Seattle. Our state is under a lot of pressure to do the same. I've never, ever liked this term shelter in place. It seems like the weakest, most afraid term possible. Like, it just seems shelter in place. I I don't like it. I feel like we're all playing fast and loose with terms, too. I'll hear reporters call it a virus, then they'll call it a disease. People like to uh, say that they're quarantining themselves at home. As if we've, as if we actually have, like, Tanks patrolling the streets, locking us down. You know, you'll, you'll hear the term lockdown. It's almost like people are leaning into it. They're, they, they love it almost. But in a, like a weird, twisted way, they're enjoying it. I, and it's not just – it's obviously not just us. It's a worldwide phenomenon. 
The government of Qatar is closing more public spaces, including all beaches. Parks are already off limits, as well as restaurants, cafes and shopping malls. The Gulf country has recorded almost 500 cases. It says most are expatriate workers. I kind of like it. I kind of wish it was always like this to a degree. I think if we could have – if anything could stick, it would be having more people work from home, use less resources, spread less diseases. I think it actually – some of this is maybe what life should be like in 2020. But there's another element of this and maybe it's just me being old man Chris. But I don't like the use of the term social distancing. It's a clumsy term to begin with. Because social distancing implies you're going to socially distance yourself from people. Socially distance implies you're going to stop emotionally interacting, stop engaging with individuals in society. That's what social distance implies. It's a clumsy use of a term. When in fact, with people working from home and being quote-unquote quarantined, they actually need more social interaction than ever. This is super apparent on Twitter and YouTube. It's obvious. People are craving social interaction. People want social closeness. It's physical distancing that we need to do. But that doesn't matter. Now it's a worldwide term. It's everywhere. But first, let's go straight to central London now and speak to the housing secretary, uh, Robert Jenrick. Thank you very much for being on the programme this morning, Mr Jenrick. Good morning. Now, the Prime Minister has said that the NHS will be overwhelmed unless people start socially distancing right now, saying that people shouldn't go and see their mums on Mother's Day. It's a pretty bleak warning. (laughs) The term social distancing has spread faster than the coronavirus. Within 48 hours, it was a worldwide term. And now you've even got celebrities being cutesy. Well, the actor Kevin Bacon is adopting his well-known Six Degrees uh, game to encourage social distancing during the coronavirus pandemic. And it's trending under the hashtag, I stay home, I stay home for. Take a look at this. <sighs> Mommy needs a joint. Hi, folks. You know me, right? I'm technically only six degrees away from you. Every one of us has someone was worth staying home for man isn't it weird that the actor kevin bacon uh is like just basically now known for that <laughs> that's really strange there's another strange aspect of this i mean i think the term social distancing is is horrible i think shelter in place sounds weak and people's reaction to this now has made me significantly more afraid of a public freakout than i am of the actual coronavirus if Cuomo's right and 80% of the people are going to get it, then I'm probably in that demo. So I'm not – I really can't – I'm not so worried about that. I am worried about normalizing this kind of overreaction. Here we are fighting an invisible enemy. We're at war with America's favorite thing. And in so, we are demanding that we be locked down. I got a new thing I'm doing now. I take screenshots on social media, on Reddit comments, on YouTube, whenever I see people desperately pleading for the government to lock them down. It's all over like our Seattle right now and on Twitter, pleading to be locked down. Please lock us down. Pleading their government to lock them down. (laughs) Uh, Imagine 
imagine an, a, a real significant scenario. A biological agent is released. Somebody, somebody attacks the power grid. Some country launches a missile. Imagine how we would respond when it's an invisible virus compared to something like that. And, and the people are asking for it. Now, should they voluntarily be sheltering in place or quarantining themselves or whatever other kind of locking themselves down? Yeah, they should be. We all should be trying to minimize this thing, not because it'll probably prevent us from getting it, but because of the hospital capacities. And to help prevent spreading it to people who are significantly at risk. We have a family member who is currently a very at-risk type um, demographic. They have lung issues. They're in their 60s. Their immune system is compromised. I mean, it's a very, very serious example of this. So there's there are people that are truly at risk and there are reasons for all of us to take steps. But pleading, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. So I'm taking screenshots to document the wicked now. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to remember these people. I just can't believe what I'm seeing. And it's from people like I just I can't believe to see it from. But there's another aspect of this. Speaking of invisible things and strangeness. Where the hell's Joe Biden? Bernie Sanders just raised $2 million. I know what Donald Trump is doing. Where the hell is Joe Biden? I checked out the campaign YouTube channel and site. Currently, they are recutting old Biden debates from like 2012 or whatever and cutting them up and releasing them as new videos. But Joe Biden seems to be just gone. He's just gone. He's totally taking this opportunity to stay out of the limelight. No gaffes if you're not in front of a camera and nobody's looking for you. Well, almost nobody. I did find one clip talking about this. I think this clip also serves as a reminder of what to be grateful that your unfiltered show is not. So we've been covering, obviously, all of the workings here in D.C. on both sides. What is Mitch McConnell doing? What's Chuck Schumer doing? Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters put out a good proposal. Bernie Sanders has been hosting fireside chats, roundtables, lots of people at least trying, even in often very flawed ways, <laughs> to have their voices heard and shape the response to this crisis right now. But there's one name that has been conspicuously absent, and that is the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. Yeah, where is he? He hasn't come out with anything. <laughs> he hasn't come out with new proposals. He called on Trump to invoke the Defense Production Act. Nine minutes later, Trump invoked the Defense Production Act. And that's so it. That's that all we it. heard. That's the last time I heard from <laughs> Joe. What's he doing? Where's his leadership? Where's his this? And this is was this is actually what I was saying, where I thought that he would benefit from this crisis, because I thought he would learn the lesson from 2008 with Barack Obama, where Obama came to Washington, coordinated the response. He looked really presidential. It was this big show of like, okay, this guy could lead the country through the financial crisis. Joe is nowhere. I mean, he should be holding daily press conferences and acting like a president if he actually wants to be the leader through a crisis like this. There's been no economic stimulus reception. This is what I was thinking too, right? Before we get to the economy stuff, because I do want to talk about that in a second. Um, This is his moment, isn't it? To show the steady hand of Joe Biden that he's been promising to replace Trump with Trump's holding daily press conferences. Mitch McConnell is holding daily press conference or near daily. Chuck Schumer had a, at a press conference. Nancy Pelosi's having press conferences. Where's Joe Biden? I think, I mean, I'm left to assume that they're taking advantage of this situation to hide. 
And then they can come out and say, well, we didn't want to we didn't want to make it a political fight during, a, you know, a serious whatever. Of course, that's such crap. They're all making this a political fight. Any candidate would leverage this moment. Of course, that's crap. But people will eat it up. Let's talk about the economy. There was one of my favorite stories, read Juicy, this weekend. And that was senators taking a little dip in the old revenue pool by selling early before the market discovered the bad news. I'll give you a little background here. NPR has obtained a secret recording taken three weeks ago. You're going to hear the voice of Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr, Republican in the Senate. You're going to hear him warning a private audience about how the coronavirus would impact the United States. There's one thing that I can tell you about this. It is much more aggressive in its transmission than anything that we have seen in recent history. It's probably more akin to the 1918 pandemic. More akin to the 1918 pandemic is what you heard him say there. This was a stronger message than most Americans were hearing at that time. And Burr's comments raised questions about why an audience at a lunch on Capitol Hill would get what seemed to be a more frank assessment than the general public. It doesn't work if we all know. It doesn't work, you see. There's a, there's a, there's another element to this story, and then you'll understand why the general public didn't find out at the same time this group of close club members found out. Do you remember the first thing you did when you realized this coronavirus was going to really impact the U.S.? Did you call a loved one or check on an elderly person at higher risk or talk things through with your children? Or maybe go buy extra groceries, supplies, sanitizer? Or if you work in healthcare. You may have known more earlier. You may have discussed precautions at work. If you serve in government, you might have been privy to earlier warnings and basically the preparations, which provide extra time to do any of the above. But you know what some U.S. senators did when they got early secret warnings about this virus? They allegedly swiftly moved to profit on it, what? to either save or make money in their stock portfolios. I like how he's pretending as if he's semi-surprised by this. Allegedly? What? This story tonight, right now, is the first Washington scandal of the coronavirus era. Obviously, it didn't take long. Now, here are the basics. Richard Burr, the Republican senator who leads the Intelligence Committee, got key coronavirus briefings way back in February and then made related trades, unloading $1.7 million of stock, including in key industries like hotels and resorts. NPR reporting that he grasped the seriousness of the pandemic, discussed his concerns at a private luncheon, while in public went on to tell a different story. He wrote in one article, the U.S. was better prepared than ever to face the coronavirus. Another senator, Kelly Loeffler, also allegedly involved in trading off this type of intelligence, selling millions in stock after a private meeting on January 24th, investing in companies that would go up in value from the pandemic, buying stock, for example, in a company that helps people work from home called Citrix, while still recently striking a very different note in public. The good news is the consumer is strong, the economy is strong, jobs are growing. Our president has done a fantastic job. This is on March 10th, by the way. (laughs) Now, there are defenses to all of this. Senator Burr is insisting that he relied only on public information to make whatever trades he did. Leffler saying any decisions for her investments are made by third party advisors. (laughs) That's always a good one, huh? Yeah, yeah. I like how uh, they just 
coincidentally also bought stock in Citrix, which, uh, you know, owns GoToMeeting. <laughs> Just coincidentally. Now, on Monday, well, you're probably hearing this on Monday or whenever you got this, but uh, as I record, this is Sunday the 22nd, and we're hearing huge, huge numbers for a stimulus package. And it, it started initially at $1 trillion, got up to $2 trillion the last time we did a show, and now people are saying $4 trillion. Uh, either way, it's going to be a ton of money. Where do the talks stand right now on this new huge economic stimulus package? Well, I've had two good meetings this afternoon. with. This is your buddy Chuck Schumer. Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, they've lasted about an hour and 15 minutes total. Uh, we, went, we went over a lot of details on a lot of the issues that we hope will be in the package. And I'm very optimistic that we can get something done. Uh, we're not there yet, but we're working all night and uh, we're making very, very good progress. You know, we Democrats uh, want a package that stands for two things. First, workers first. Not helping and bailing out big corporations, focusing on the workers, the average American family who's suffering. And second, apropos of what you were just talking about, we need a Marshall Plan for hospitals. All the hospitals I speak to in New York are desperately short of equipment. It's not it's, it's beds, it's ma not just masks, PPE, personal protective equipment, you know, the gowns and everything else that protect them, the ventilators when somebody's really sick with coronavirus that they need. So we have proposed $100 billion to go to our hospitals for equipment, for more beds, and to help bring in more nurses and doctors. There's shortage, shortages of them, too. It's a lot of money, and there's other packages for different parts of the industry in there, which I think is pretty critical. Um, I am very interested to see what they do for very small businesses like diners. We have a family member who owns one. What are they going to do there? As we tell people to stay home and be afraid, they're not going to spend. It's just maybe in some ways that's good. You know, teach people how to cook. <laughs> they have to use the food in their cupboards. It's a good thing. But there's also a downside to it. The week ahead is really going to be fascinating. We just went through the worst week since 2008. Yeah, this is Mad Money's Kramer. With the Dow plunging another 913 points today, S&P plummeting 4.34%, the Nasdaq nosediving 3.79%. At one point, the market looked like it was going to roar. And you know what? We were actually lucky. We were lucky it was only down that much because if things don't break right, we're going to be experiencing a lot of weeks that are worse than the depths of the Great Recession. This is what I've been talking about is we are really flirting with something dangerous here. Now, I I have kind of just lived a life of recessions. In my 20s, we had the dot-com bust. In my 30s, we had the 2008 global financial crisis. And now I'm almost in my 40s, and we are going to suffer the COVID crisis financially for, I think, potentially 10 years. And here's why I say that. At least here in the United States, it... It genuinely took a decade for our job market to get back. You know what? In fact, I will put in the show notes a link to a Planet Money podcast where they interviewed the guy behind the TARP program for the bailout back in 2008 and asked him what he would do differently and where they screwed up. It's a fascinating interview, and it has informed a lot of my opinion about this now. And I will link it so you can hear the source material. Uh, but – I really encourage you to check that out because I think it will take us a decade to rebuild our job market if we do this for – if we shut down these small businesses that are employing people. So I've, I'm following the economic aspect of this 
very closely because much like the Russia story towards the end of the investigation – or I mean of the election, the investigation in the Russiagate became the longer p- part of the story. The, eco- the economic aspect of this will be the longer aspect of the story and particularly how it impacts individuals like you and me and small businesses. The, the airlines, the hospitals, they'll be fine. Why? Because we are fighting a two-front war in this country right now. We need to beat the coronavirus, a scourge that's unrelentlessly easy to catch and often requires hospitalization, far more hospitalization than we can actually provide. At the same time, we need to preserve the economy, an economy that in many ways is no longer open for business. There are 100 million workers who could potentially lose their jobs if we don't shut down COVID-19 soon. People's life savings are going to be pulverized as company after company suspends their dividends. Investors sell their 401ks into this maelstrom of fear and unremitting panic because they need the cash. They need the cash right now. It's like a slow grind financial health apocalypse. Uh, the plummeting of uh, price of oil, it isn't helping either. We need to get crude back over $30 or else the layoffs in the oil patch will be immense. Fortunately, that's a man-made crisis that the president can stop with one phone call to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. His take on the oil uh, situation here is a fascinating one. Obviously, the last two episodes so far, it's been a topic of conversation. And I think it's going to play a big role in either prolonging the economic issues or in the recovery because oil production here in the United States is just a phenomenal source of jobs. You, If you're in some of these states that uh, have some of these oil operations, you know what I'm talking There's entire towns now that exist to just employ, to house and have shops and all the other things you need for all these employees. It's remarkable the amount of people to put it in drivers and shops and just so many jobs. And when the price of oil drops, it becomes too expensive to produce it in the United States. And those jobs shut down, they're lost, and then they take a very long time to spin back up. Now, the prices of oil go down for consumers, which seems kind of like a positive. So I've really been torn on this oil analysis. What Kramer brings in here is the interesting prospect of that Trump could probably just try to fix this with a couple of phone calls because he's good buds with these journalists killing uh, Saudis. And then the, the war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, well, that eventually will extinguish itself, and it's not like the oil is going away. We'll still have our oil. We just have to then ramp production back up. It was the decline in oil that turned the stock market from up till down. Unfortunately, right now, we seem to be losing the war on both fronts, the virus and the economy. While I'm confident that we'll ultimately triumph over COVID-19, as confident as everyone else, it might not happen fast enough with tens of millions of laid-off workers burning through their savings. God help anyone who was living paycheck to paycheck. Next week, the healthcare front and the financial front, well, they're going to collide. When we come in on Monday morning, we're going to learn the true size of the Senate stimulus bill. It needs to be as big as possible. I'm hearing $2 trillion, larger than many people expect, but I think $4 trillion makes more sense. People keep saying we need to fight this thing with a bazooka. I mean, are you kidding me? We need thermonuclear weapons. You know why? Because we're also going to start hearing about an explosion in new infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. We know this virus spreads exponentially, but we have trouble processing what that means. So the figures will seem stunning and terrifying in equal measures. The government's behind the curve when it comes to the fight against the pandemic front. The least we could do is take these financial fears off the sagging shoulders of America. 
Believe me, it's worth the effort and the money. As long as we can tie it over regular people while we wait for some kind of treatment or vaccine, the stock market will eventually stop cratering. It will help people's savings. Man, all of this sounds a lot like socialism. Is this all Bernie's idea? Wait, wait, no, it's Trump's? I'm sorry, what? Can you fact check that? Can you can you double check that? Because it sounds an awful lot like socialism. Uh-huh, yeah. No, Donald Trump. Donald Trump and his entire his entire administration. You're saying the entire entire Republican administration, uh-huh. And the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate are all working together to pass massive socialism bills? Hmm. Huh. Well, maybe it wouldn't be so scary if we elected Bernie then. <laughs> Anyways, I just think it's funny. Nobody's talking about Biden. Nobody's talking about how this is essentially socialism. And I think those would be amazing conversations to be having right now. It's like the election is completely on hold. But I understand. we got a lot of other things going on right now. Keep an eye on things. I'll try to get another episode out to you as soon as possible. Unfilter.show slash subscribe. You just get them automatically. My plan is, eventually, spin the Patreon back up, transition the show to weekly, and make it sustainable. That's my goal. Make it sustainable. Keep a people's version of the history. Because after COVID passes, we've got the economic stuff. But then there's that silly little election just around the corner. So you got a cratering global economy with every country shutting down. And you've got the world's most powerful nation about to hold another election for their leader. In the midst of all of this. So there's a few more things we'll have left to cover. Check me out at chrislass.com. That's my new personal website, at chrislass on Twitter. Give a shout-out to my buddy, at Nunes. Should be joining me very soon. Thanks so much for joining me on this particular episode of the Unfiltered Program, and I plan to see you right back here soon! Soon!